0: I remember one day going into work, scared out of my mind that my sister was going to one of the biggest protests, as I'm so proud of her for just standing up for what she believes in and having to take care of these COVID patients and just not knowing it. It was just all grief, one long year of grief and fear, fear at home, fear of going into work. And some people were just done with it.
1: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Shrinking Burnout, a podcast where two psychiatrists want to talk about clinician burnout. I'm Varsha Radhakrishnan, and I'm joined today with my co-host, Andy Wu.
2: Hi, everyone. Today, we have a very special guest, Lorraine. Before we get started, we realized we haven't really had an episode discussing nursing, an incredibly important role that our colleagues serve in the hospital system. And as we've discussed before, no one's immune to burnout, and it's not just limited to physicians. So we're hoping to get a better sense of Lorraine's experience working as a nurse.
0: Hi, Varsha and Andy. Thanks so much for having me on your podcast today. It's honestly such an honor to talk about my passion, just being a nurse. I've been a nurse for seven years now, mainly working in Boston, Massachusetts but one of the prime like epicenters for healthcare and it's been really great experience so far. And then of course, you know, we've just never experienced something like this. The biggest hit to healthcare Um, the COVID pandemic has definitely made my experience really interesting. Let's just say that for now. So, you know, working as a nurse, you know, there's just so many different fields that you can go into with nursing for the first five years. I was working as like a medical surgical nurse. So taking care of four to five patients um, who are just coming in for things like infections, surgery, have hospital stays anywhere from like three to 10 days. And generally, you see pretty happy outcomes. You see patients going home, you see patients getting better. I did work on a surgical oncology floor for a while, where patients are going in for a various cancers we heard happy stories of um being 100% cancer free that the surgery was able to take out whatever cancer they had and you know in their colon or we heard devastating um cases of people getting pancreatic cancer with maybe 2 months left to live or less and so you know getting used to that and um you know having victories on the floor and obviously really terrible like cases where we would have to grieve with the family members, you know, and just like cry with them. was sad, you know, when I first started nursing, but we got pretty used to it. And just being there was much more of an honor to be there with families during this time. And I loved what I was doing. I wanted to be there for these families during these terrible times. And I knew just then as a nurse that I had to take care of myself um, on an emotional level at home. I I don't I can't speak for all nurses, but for myself, I really did love journaling. I was actively seeing a therapist, just talking probably like once a week or every two weeks, just talking about daily stressors in my life, especially with with nursing. And I knew that I had to manage my emotions. I just hope that more nurses realize that they need to take care of themselves in order to just fully be there as a nurse. And you see that, the nurses who aren't taking care of themselves kind of mentally, emotionally, spiritually, are getting more burnt out at the end of a week. If you're working 36, 48 hours, or all 12 hour shifts back to back. How much more reserve do you have at the end of the day to come home? I think a lot of people see nurses working typically 36 hours and 36 hour work week. And they're like, gee, you must have so much time. You only work three days a week. But I think what people need to know about nursing is like that's considered full time because those 36 hours are physical labor According to OSHA, we're supposed to be lifting no more than 35 pounds. Like that's a joke because at work, we're caring for patients that are double or triple my weight. And sometimes you're the only nurse. You have to turn these patients without maybe anyone else helping you or maybe just one other person. By the end of your shift, like you are aching, you're on your feet, you know, the whole time. So it's physical labor. Then, you know, I talked about the emotional labor of just seeing people just sick in the hospital, scared, grieving dying. And then just all around being exhausted, dealing with all the other things in the workplace, just mentally assessing patients, looking at charts, all of that. So it adds up.
2: You gave a, a very comprehensive outline in terms of pretty much like all of the stressors that I would think that nurses experience in terms of their work situation and also in terms of things that are at home and the difficulty that you would have in terms of really managing that what, what was interesting is, is how you're really able to rattle off a lot of things that would get a lot of people really stressed. One thing that really gets me curious is, you know, if you were able to kind of go back seven years ago to Lorraine seven years ago, do you think that Lorraine seven years ago would be able to know about any of this stuff? What would you actually tell seven years ago, Lorraine? That's such
0: a good question. I mean, I used to orient brand new nurses on my floor and i would so I'm constantly reflecting on what it was like when i first started and it's like textbooks just can't teach you this nursing school can't teach you half the stuff that you have to deal with you're also half of nursing is being like a glorified waitress you're just asking people what they want to drink or eat and things like that they didn't teach you that in nursing school and then being able to say you have four or five patients one person in one room is happy flipping channels on the tv asking for chicken tenders and and you have to be laughing with that patient the next next patient over that patient is imminently passing the family's at the bedside you're crying with them you don't know what to say and then walk out of the room switch your face snap of a finger just ready and then go back to laughing with the other patient in the other room so I don't know what can prepare you for that so seven years ago I had no idea right but I think that I am just so grateful but now I don't know if it's I don't know if it's emotional intelligence I don't know if it's just having to just kind of roll with the punches and figure it out. And this is how nursing is. You just have to keep going and you just learn along the way.
1: Thank you so much for sharing. I was curious to hear a little bit more about your various experiences within the field of nursing. I know you've alluded to it before, but I can imagine it was quite challenging to be able to switch from one type of role to a different one, depending on the different kind of subspecialty that you're working in. What has that experience been like
0: for you? Just being a med surge nurse for five years, I think it's totally different than the ICU. I'm not minimizing any part of nursing, any kind of floor work. It's all just so important and that each has its own strengths. And I thought, you know, coming into the ICU, I've been a nurse for five years. I can handle it. Doesn't matter in critical care. It's just a whole different world. I started off, I feel like as a, I called myself a baby nurse all over again, learning a whole different set of skills. First of all, And second of all, dealing with a whole different emotional and mental workload that I could have never, ever imagined before. Before COVID, we just saw people passing at least once a week and just getting used to that.
1: I think what is particularly striking is the stark contrast between those two roles, right? Both of which are high intensity, but with the role in the ICU, you're in some ways almost enveloped in life or death decisions all the time and in a high-octane environment with respect to family members. So what's so challenging is, how do you explain to a family member that the quality of life is drastically deteriorating by, for example, being on life-sustaining or prolonging equipment, such as
0: that of a ventilator? Yet on the other hand, there are also miracles. How can we also look at this family member in their eye and say to them, we don't believe in miracles? I've seen miracles happen in the ICU. I've seen people that had absolutely no shot. I said, there was no way. And then they did. They did make it off the ventilator. They did have a meaningful life with quality after, but it's just hard. You know, we're not God, you know, to make that decision. We know it's completely up to whatever healthcare decision maker has been assigned, but sometimes, you know, we're angry with Whatever decision these family members make, I'm like, how could you make your own mother? How could you make your daughter? How could you make anybody live like this with such low quality of life on a ventilator for so long? This is torture. So I wasn't used to that. Being a nurse for five years, I had a wake-up call coming right into the ICU and just seeing these kind of issues.
1: You know, one thing that it brought to mind, actually, for me, um, especially as you mentioned, some of the anger and rage of seeing people suffering um, and seeing families who may not realize necessarily the full gamut of, you know, what is reasonable, not reasonable in terms of medical care. How do you find yourself dealing with all the resentment and anger and pain that often is sort of thrown at
0: you from different directions? That's a very good question changing any kind of plan of care. So it's a multidisciplinary effort. Honestly, in the ICU, I've just seen the work of multiple disciplines far more than in any other nursing setting. So in the ICU, you know, we're dealing with a team of physicians. I've been fortunate enough, all my experiences have been at academic um, centers, level one trauma. So we're working with interns, fellows, chiefs, and attendings. And so I've been fortunate to just have the input of all of those physicians as well as respiratory therapists. So we're getting the input of all these people that are also conversing with the family. And the nurse is the biggest advocate for the family. So it's just a long discussion. It's not just an easy answer of what's going on, it is the decision of so many people coming together. Ultimately, uh, the decision is made by uh, the family member or the legal guardian. But the anger has come from truly understanding what kind of torture it is to be on a ventilator i think i think people don't really know how awful it is on the body to be just first of all in the icu you decline even if you or i you know healthy 20 year olds 30 year olds are on the ventilator our body weakens it's just not a good thing to be on a ventilator of course it saves your life but you just know that it's torture you know that people are soiling themselves whatever you can imagine urine Feces, blood, everything. It's the anger. I'm at least able to vent with my fellow coworkers. Like, can you believe this? You know, I I I can't believe that they're doing that. So like, uh, just that outward talking about these emotions, even with the doctors, and just sometimes just saying that out. Like, we know what might be the right answer to do in this situation. We just have to respect. I mean, we just need that deep, deep empathy and have to just respect the wishes of a family member. What can you do? put ourselves in those shoes and be like, you know what, what would I do if my mother was in this situation? I'd want to do everything. I just think, okay, you know what, then I'm whatever time that this patient has left in the ICU, I'm just going to make the mess of it. Meaning praying with the patient, literally talking to the patient as if they can hear me, putting music on for them, taking care of their hair, their mouth care, their skin, making sure they're repositioned. Cause I'm like, this is the only time that they have left. I'm just, I don't know. I'm going to treat them with the honor that they deserve, the respect, and like just the complete care as I can. But that is a privilege. I have worked only at level one trauma centers with really great staffing, so I am able to turn my patients every two hours. I'm able to clean their mouths out, wash their hair, put lotion all over them, make them look like like they're an angel. I just take that work with just such care and and that's how I find meaning in what I'm doing.
2: One of the things that you mentioned earlier had to do with uh, your individual way in finding meaning in your work. And this is one of the things that I think when people think about burnout, one of the things has to do with cynicism in terms of how you approach your work. And that's sort of what I was hearing when it came to, you know, how you experienced what it felt like for you to hear that there were family members that were perhaps, uh, doing things that maybe in in your experience, and your mind, and also the medical team's mind, it probably wasn't the the best idea. And I guess that the question would be, you know, how do you take that home with you? You know, this this sort of cynicism because you, you came in. I'm I'm assuming you know when you started nursing, you wanted to be there for the patients, you wanted to do things, you wanted to do right by the patients, and you wanted the patients to get better. And like you say, when you're in the ICU, there's a good percentage of patients that actually won't get any better, no matter how much life-saving treatment that you give and, and you, you know, you try to give them time. And you're right, miracles do happen. But death and dying is a part of being in the ICU.
0: Over time, after working so long, I'm able to kind of leave work. And I don't know if it's just bottling up and forget, you know, forgetting about it, moving on to the next thing. Because you know that if you just dwell on it, you kind of let yourself go down that rabbit hole of just being upset your day will be ruined or, or whatever. So I don't know if it's some sort of blocking effect that we just are just ready to move on with the day. That also started early on in nursing care. You realize you just can't bring it home and just keep dwelling on it. So I think, I don't know if it's learned. I, I don't know if I can even speak to all nurses about this, but I think for myself, it's just almost like, okay, as soon as I leave work, just leave that where it is.
2: And, and Lorraine, I think this is sort of the intersection with burnout and trauma, when it comes to really thinking and processing the really terrible things that you'll see uh, at work as healthcare workers. The issue is when it comes to trauma and and when it comes to working through trauma, some people, you know, they're more readily able to talk about things. Some people aren't ready to talk about things. Some people aren't interested in talking about it ever in terms of their, their whole life. And that's sort of what we think about is the wide range in terms of how people really respond to all of these work stressors. You mentioned a little bit about... COVID. And it sounds like you were in the ICU during the, the COVID surge and, you know, maybe a, a little bit after that. So I, I don't know if you wanted to share a little bit about your experience when you are working during the COVID surge.
0: When COVID first came around, we were scared ourselves. Nobody wanted to go inside a COVID room. I feel like the PPE that we used to don ourselves with. I mean, it's the same PPE, but we were more scared. We made sure that everything was tightly wrapped around us, that we had absolutely, you know, full protection on. And we were only in the room for one second. We could be, everyone wanted to limit their time, especially physicians, which was just real anger that came out at the beginning of the pandemic. When we saw physicians making orders and shouting through the door windows, not actually coming in to assess patients. Nurses got angry. Every, I would say that every hospital nurses were just getting angry by like the limited amount of people that were going in. And it just felt like nurses along with these patients were just the victims of COVID because we had to go in, spend as an ICU nurse, seven, eight hours in a room with the patient. And same thing with respiratory therapists who are not getting enough credit. Everyone was scared. Everyone was so scared for their only family members that they had to come home to You know, living with roommates, friends, it seemed like everyone had their one, everyone had something to say about COVID and their own knowledge that they learned online. Even as like restrictions on like socializing came out, like no one wanted to hang out with us. And we also didn't. We were also being exposed to COVID patients. We knew it wasn't a good idea to mingle or see anybody.
2: I think that the big thing about healthcare workers and uh, working during the COVID pandemic is that it's not just about... The work and like the death and dying that you guys all saw that we all saw during the pandemic. It has to do also with the fact that our supports that existed outside of work sort of diminished or dwindled because of the fact that the covid related restrictions also applied to our experiences outside. And that fear and the unknowing about like whether or not we were going to be a danger to others, and then the sense of the fact that we had to sort of preserve ourselves. But that also gave us less room to really recuperate from the stuff that was happening at work. So I think it was a very unique experience that we're still living. And to be frank, I don't know when People are really able to, to say like, okay, things are normal now because it takes, it, I think it's going to take a while for us to really try to recover from all of the stuff that that happened or is happening right now.
1: I completely agree with Andy and I, I don't think I could have said it better myself. I think the big thing that, you know, especially as you said in the very beginning, how isolating it must have felt to, to feel almost like, you know, you couldn't really hang out with family friends, even with colleagues, it's just, it sounds like a nightmare in a lot of ways. I know Andy and I struggled with sort of a different set of challenges, but of course, all of our experiences have been very different. Um, And I can imagine, especially being on literally, uh, you know, the front lines as you are. I'm wondering what Was helpful during those first couple of months, especially when you couldn't really see people, when you had to be alone all the time, Um, come home straight from work and sort of marinate in those difficult feelings and thoughts that arise during work. So
0: I think I am just so fortunate for my friends and family We're just so there as an emotional support. Every single day I had friends that FaceTime me and they're just like, what do you need? I can't thank my friends enough. Sending me food. You know, delivery also in the hospital, they were constantly sending us food. So thank you to everybody, all small businesses, local restaurants, like constantly sending us food. That was nice. The support and cheering from like everybody at the beginning was actually really nice because we knew that, gosh, we were thrown in. We didn't have a choice. This is what we did for work. But I had the best friends in the world just constantly checking up on me and talking. And at least maybe my friends know that that's my way of releasing my outlet. Every single day, I would just have support to talk about what I was dealing with. But one thing, and I wonder if you guys, you know, just as physicians had to deal with this, is everyone, because you're the healthcare worker, maybe in your circle of family or friends, would come ask you all these questions about COVID, suddenly becoming everybody's go-to to to answer all these questions, especially me working in the COVID ICU. The other thing I remember is a lot of family members would sort of
1: be fed this misinformation. My family's in India, and they have this WhatsApp chat. And there's all kinds of things just like passed around in there. And everyone would keep asking me like, oh, yeah, you're the doctor. Like, is this correct? And on top of that, I'm like, I'm a psychiatrist. So I don't feel like 100% comfortable, you know, answering all of these questions about COVID when I'm not necessarily the person directly treating these patients. And yet there was this unsaid responsibility almost to be the person to know these things. And I think that That was hard, too.
2: Yeah, I I think the big thing of of what you really just outlined is you're no longer just playing nurse to your patients or being the nurse. You're you're sort of playing nurse to your family members as well or playing the the role of the healthcare worker. For, you know, I and and Varsha as psychiatrists, we deal with uncertainty on a daily basis, unfortunately, because like, frankly, psychiatry as a field, there's a lot of uncertainty. It's really hard sometimes when you're talking with these family members as to, oh, is he going to get better? what's going on and this uncertainty is is very stressful to internally manage when you're really dealing with patients and patients families and then on the flip side you know when you're dealing with the uncertainty of just COVID in general, and the sort of pull that your families are asking you, like, oh, is this going to be the right thing? Should I do this? Should I do that? That's also like another added stressor as to really try to manage what to do in this situation like that. And I think you're right in terms of the fact that we do have a responsibility to our family and to the general public in terms of what's safe and what's not safe, because I think that the biggest line that we probably heard from all the hospitals, all the hospital management was, this is an evolving problem. And it's true. It is an evolving situation. But at the same time, to deal with that uncertainty and to be the ones where you're telling the family members, like your family members, who are like, hey, what should we be doing? This is a big burden to try to shoulder.
1: But I think, aside from, of course, the challenge of shouldering the burden and in some other ways, privilege of being a source of strength, knowledge, expertise, emotional support for our families and friends during an already trying time. Lorraine, something you had mentioned before really stood out to me and has been something we have explored together previously on this podcast. The idea of shouldering grief and serving somewhat as a container for pain and sadness. What has that experience been like
0: for you? It's actually something really important I wanted to share. So before I thought being an ICU nurse, I knew was starting to get a hold of maybe, maybe just like a little bit, how to deal with grief, like with these patient family members and talking to them and being able to cry with them and just saying, I'm so sorry. It was an honor for me to care for your family member. I'll make sure that I'll do my best to make sure your family member's okay and their life is meaningful towards the end here. And before COVID, the family members could be at the bedside. The family members could hold the patient's hand as they were passing, or we could even let them know, hey, it looks like it probably will happen. Uncle and auntie want to come? Oh gosh, the neighbor next door wants to come and their mother wants to come? Sure. Everybody come to see this patient passing and be with them during this time. Have your rituals, do whatever religious like ceremonies you want to do at the bedside. It's all there. We're here for you. Do you want coffee? Do you want tea? Do you want snacks? Do you want food? Do you want lunch? Whatever you need, come. And we'd have 10 family members at the bedside in the ICU, and it was so much more meaningful. Now with COVID, this is the part, and it still makes me so angry and sad. It makes me so sad. It's just not fair. You can only have a family member come to the bedside if your family member is imminently passing within 24 to 48 hours. How can you even say that? Like we don't, as sometimes as providers don't even know when that 24 to 48 hours even is for somebody to pass. What if it happened sooner and we didn't get that family member to come to the bedside in time? How can you live with that at the end of the day? I still don't know the answer to that. I just, you feel like absolute when you have to say that to a family or if they do end up passing before the family can get there. And so also dealing with the, talking to these families about prognosis before was challenging You didn't know what to say before. Maybe I was starting to have an idea of what to say to families before. Now, what do I say when I'm so afraid of maybe I know my own family members or friends have COVID and I also don't know what COVID even is like at the beginning as people were passing away and talking to their families and I'm talking to them on FaceTime and they're like, well, can you also FaceTime this other family member and put this one in? Can we do a three-way call? Um, can you also talk to the other person? I'm like, I don't have time to talk to all of you family members. Gather yourselves together on FaceTime. Or I have one lead person answering all the questions. And you can FaceTime for 10 minutes because I need this FaceTime iPad. For the next family member, your time is up in 10 minutes. How can I say that? It was awful. It's heartbreaking and it's still going on. So that's what people who are outside of the ICU or outside of hospitals, like not lay people do not know what's happening in the ICU is that you are FaceTiming your family member on a ventilator. You can't even see them because how much video can FaceTime even get? We have to put it as close to the patient's face, which is horrifying seeing them with a breathing tube in, seeing them with tubes in their nose, seeing their face looking all swollen, mushed up from being laying on their stomach. Their family member is horrified having to look at their family member on FaceTime this way. And then suddenly having to talk to the family member where we don't even know the answers and we're grieving and scared of COVID ourselves. And all you can say is, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I don't even know myself what to tell you. And so you're dealing with that. And then also in the heat of 2020, what, what was 2020 with everything going on? Suddenly you're just not knowing what COVID is to suddenly. Grieving all of these shootings that you're hearing about, of these terrible things happening to the Black community, to happening to the Asian community, and seeing on the news, everyone posting their opinion about this or that. Seeing the news having such biased like reports of these terrible things that are happening. Many of my friends are extremely involved in social justice. Hearing them going to these riots and these protests. And I remember one day going into work, scared out of my mind that my sister was going to one of the biggest protests, as I'm so proud of her for just standing up for what she believes in and having to take care of like these COVID patients going in so scared into work, so scared of what's happening, you know, with my sister and what's happening in the world and the community and just not knowing. It's just like, it was just all grief, one long year of grief and fear.
2: When you think about burnout and when you think about the fact that, you know, it's not just related to your work and there's all these different things that are really figuring into how you perceive your work. And what you were just saying is when you're the one that has to put that iPad in front of the patient and they have to basically tell the family members, they have to kind of warn them to be like, hey, listen, you know, your loved one isn't going to be looking like how you may actually want them to be looking. And that's a really difficult conversation to have. But I I really think that this whole sense of feeling like powerless or or just feeling like you're a, a cog in the system. This is this is one of the biggest factors to really feeling burnt out. When you have policies from the hospital that are telling you to limit your care in a certain way that you feel like is not really in the best interest of the patient, but also you know it's probably the right thing to do, or the fact that people have to stay safe and like it, it really feels like no one can really win in this situation. And also at the same time, you're the person that has to hold the bag of, you know, bad stuff that is kind of going on. And and I think what you really highlighted there was that when you're in that position, when you feel like you're really trapped, uh, that that's when things are really hard.
0: Yeah, that's a good word to describe it as you just feel trapped because there's like no other way. You know, you're like, this is this is it. This is what we're given. And this is what we're going to do with what we're given. You know, patients are also, I'm not talking about like how scared patients are, just even before COVID, like in the hospital, the hospital is a scary place. Talk about white coat syndrome. It's a thing. People just being fully like scared and actually having physiologic signs of being afraid, their blood pressure going up of just being in the hospital, seeing doctors having to talk to us. It's scary for people who just don't have any idea what You know how medical procedures work, suddenly all these people are walking into the room, lifting up their patient gown. It's scary. Even before COVID, if you're coming in for something that we healthcare providers see as seemingly simple, maybe diverticulitis flare. You're just coming into the hospital for some pain meds, antibiotics, and fluids, something maybe you're in the hospital three days and you recover and then you can go home. We think that's simple. That's scary for a lot of people. They're traumatized by already just being in the hospital let alone the ICU. And they're just like, why can't I see my family member? What do you mean? Well, I just want to see my children. I just want to talk to my children. And then also shielding your children. So many patients with their four or five-year-old, their two-year-old, how do you explain to their child that their parent is in the hospital?
2: You know, know, again, really thinking about the fact that you still have a lot of meaning, you still derive a lot of meaning and and fulfillment from the work that you have, it's tough. It's hard. There are a lot of factors that are kind of, you know, working against you and, and you do feel like you're trapped some of the times. And at the same time, right? It still sounds like you still have a reason to want to try to go to work. And I still like to go back to, you know, Lorraine seven years ago, right? You know, I, I think everyone, everyone goes into healthcare and there is a certain amount of idealism that's sort of gradually chipped away as we continue to work in healthcare. And at the same time, right? You know, for, for you, it sounds like if you're able to even just call upon, you know, whatever it is, the initial reason or the continuing reasons for you to have this fulfillment in the work, that's that's your you know reason. That's your your way in which you're able to stave off some of the more severe symptoms of burnout from what it sounds.
0: Right. I'm just fortunate. Right. So I was just talking to my coworker who did not work at a level one trauma hospital with enough staff and resources and PPE and anything. And he felt like he was in a war zone. He had four ICU patients three to four ICU patients, which is just so unsafe. These are like very unstable patients, right? Like you are titrating, life-saving medications, which means that you have to watch these monitors. And he was seeing people coding. There are shifts where he saw eight people coding in one shift. And he has PTSD now, severe, that he has rethought his career. He already knows that nursing is not meant for him anymore. And he's going to just try to work until he can really find something else to do. And he just thought of quitting so many times. That is not wimping out. That is not weakness. That is strength, knowing that you can't do this anymore. And that strength to step away from it. It's just no sign of weakness. You got to just do what's best for you. And actually, you know, so many of my um, co-workers in Boston, I know actually a lot of them that left ICU setting. They love nursing. They've just done something else with it. I'm like, go for it. Take care of yourself and your family. You got to be there. And who knows? I've only been an ICU nurse for two years, so. I probably am still bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, and I will hit a burnout point.
2: You know, you mentioned that it was a sign of weakness to, to sort of quit your profession. And I think from from a executive standpoint and from an institution-level standpoint, when we think about burnout, the, the whole point of burnout is, like, we want to fix burnout so that we can get our workers to be more efficient and more effective at their work. And also at the same time, right? I don't know if when people and healthcare workers say that they're all burnt out, you know, some of them may just have a realization that at the time of asking them, they may have hit their own physical limit, and they may not be able to actually do that job anymore. And like you say, it's a, it's a real strength to really be able to say that. And, you know, I think it's also in the benefit of the institution and the patients to really be able to identify these people that, you know, they really need to take a break, or they really need to step away, whether or not it's forever, or just for a little bit of time. I, I think it, it makes sense.
1: Well, it's, you know, along those similar lines, I think what is so important to acknowledge is that the consequences of this pandemic are going to be really long lasting. And I think hearing you almost summarize this, Lorraine, for me, reminds me of how much all of us have been through this past year. I often forget or try to forget or avoid some of these very difficult experiences that I know, you know, a lot of my friends and colleagues have have gone through, especially Know yourself included. It's easier to just sort of tuck it in the back of my mind and pretend that things are going to be better and move forward. But I know it's almost, it's naive in some ways to almost assume that, you know, things are not going to be different or not going to be the same. I think the friend that you've mentioned as an example um, is certainly not unique. There's a lot of people rethinking their careers, and it makes me really sad because there's such wonderful, dedicated good clinicians and who initially loved what they did and are now rethinking it. And it's sort of, you know, what, what can we do about it? That idea of what we talked about before of this unlimited goodwill to sort of like constantly utilizing that unlimited goodwill, the system is going to kind of like abusing in a lot of ways that goodwill of, of providers, clinicians, caretakers to the point where it no longer becomes something that's sustainable.
2: You know what comes to mind, Varsha? Varsha and I, uh, we, we have the opportunity to do couples therapy or couples work with some patients. And a question that is often asked with couples work is what's the goal of, of the couple's work? Is the goal of the couple's work to get them back together if they're having troubles? Or, like, if, if a couple separates or gets a divorce, is that a failure as you, as a therapist, for example? And I, I think it's like sort of similar here when you think about, like, if somebody realizes that they're burnt out and, you know, they, they fix their burnout by leaving, is that necessarily a bad outcome? And, you know, I, I would say it, it, it isn't. Um, and especially when you're thinking about all the reasons for burnout, like if you're thinking about the fact that this like once in a lifetime, ridiculous pandemic just completely like destroyed the world and society and how hospitals are run, you know, can you really blame someone for really leaving? At the same time, if you can think about like non-pandemic related reasons and direct causative reasons for an institution creating particular things that can be possibly improved, such as like the ratio of patients, for example, per nurse or like per provider that should be fixed so that people get less burnt out. I think that's a, that's another reason, right? And so I I think just really examining the reasons for burnout and the reasons for, for example, leaving, these are really nuanced sort of discussions that you can't just say if you leave, that's a failure on, on your end.
0: Thank you for bringing that up. So you brought up something I didn't really think about, Andy, is if you look at it from a management perspective, why do we want to decrease burnout so people can be more efficient? I'm like, gosh, when I hear the word burnout for myself and like, I just think about my coworkers, I'm like, how can I just keep them from like going into a dark place and just becoming like a shell of a human being, you know, because like there's uh, the nurses who are burnt out, who stay for years and years, nursing has pretty good pay, at least in Boston right? So like, why do these nurses stay? And maybe like, oh, you know, it's maybe like comfortable living or whatever. So they stay. And then they just become these nurses that are just so fixated and look at these patients like they're a car. You can in the ICU because it's all numbers and drips and things like that. And they lose sight that there's a human in front of them. And I think to myself, that's a burnt out nurse. They need time off. They need to take care of themselves and get back into thinking emotionally. Like there's a human being in front of them that there's like. I don't know, that, that there's someone who just like needs love and care, TLC, tender love and care, and they just don't give that. They're thinking of this patient as a robot and their mind is so logistic and like mechanical and like everything about this is just so, but that is, that is a um, defense mechanism, right? It's easier to think of this patient as a monitor, medications, numbers, that's how you get through, some nurses will say that's how they get through their shift. ICU care is really technical, like that's cool, fascinating. And you lose sight of a person being a human in front of you. And that's probably a defense mechanism of how some providers get by. When I think of burnout, though, I'm like, gosh, take care of yourself, your soul at the end of the day. Can you be a friend and like a significant other? That's why you got to take care of burnout. And so that you can also take care of your patients and see them as human. That's why I want to. But you're right. Why does management want to? So that the nurse is more efficient. But that's also true. So you can actually take care of a patient, make sure you save their life, not miss anything.
1: Well, I think the important thing you bring up, Lorraine, is sort of the fundamental idea, like we have to recognize the humanity of our patients, but also the humanity of all of us, like as providers and caretakers for these patients. I think Something that gets often, you know, missed or overlooked is the idea of efficiency in this world, you know, like improving efficiency, improving patient care. But I think it's also like all of us are human. I think that's what has to be really recognized and championed
0: in a lot of ways. So one thing management needs to realize about shrinking burnout, if management can have a role, if like hospital administration is resources and staffing, right? Easier said than done obviously some hospitals have money. It's just coincidence. The hospitals I've worked at have all been level one trauma centers. Very fortunate to have only had one to two ICU patients during this whole pandemic, which is a safe ratio. Other travel nurses that I talked to that have come from different hospitals have had lack of PPE, which is the biggest slap in the face, because you know that there's money out there. You know that there's PPE, And also just staffing, you're more at risk for burnout when you don't have these simple things. Are nurses actually getting breaks? Are they able to like actually provide good care because they have the resources that they need? Are you just like, wow, we just ran out of this one medication, simple supplies. It's ridiculous, right? You get so burnt out with that. You're like, I can't even properly do my job. And that's like the, that's the plight of many other travel nurses that I've heard that have gone to places like. Hospitals that are working with the Navajo Nation, many of them in Arizona, that just simply don't have supplies and staffing.
2: And I think that the bigger issue is it's an economic issue when it comes to resource allocation. And it's not just with nursing staffing. Like you say, right, a 12-hour shift when you're taking care of one to two ICU patients with proper PPE is already stressful in its own right. But if you imagine you're in a more resource-depleted area where you're dealing with, like you said, your friend, three to four patients without any proper PPE, that 12-hour shift is a lot different. Totally. It's the same thing with you know, residents, residents at a, you know, level one trauma center, the staffing of when a resident is on a 24 hour call, 24 hour call is tough by itself of being up for 24 hours. But how many patients is a resident seeing during that 24 hour shift? For one place, it could be just like two or three admissions overnight. For another place, it could be like 12 to 15. And who are you to say that those experiences are the same?
1: Those experiences just aren't the same. And the ultimate reason for that is a resource allocation, like you said, Andy. So I want to wholeheartedly thank Lorraine for this eye-opening discussion about burnout within the nursing community. When nurses feel burnt out, this has an unbelievable impact on the care that our patients get and the way that the hospital ecosystem and culture runs, so to speak. So thank you so much for speaking to us about your experiences. So today is December 19th, 2021. We're toward the end of the year, and Andy and I actually took a bit of a hiatus in publishing this episode, but this episode was actually recorded earlier this year. So to summarize, a lot has definitely changed over the last year, but we are again nearing another COVID surge, or again, rather, in the wake of further uncertainty. Everyone, please stay safe. We will get through this together. Drinking Burnout is a podcast about furthering the discussion of clinician burnout and recognizing the resilience and hard work that many clinicians regularly demonstrate. Nothing we say on this podcast should be taken as medical or psychiatric advice. The thoughts and opinions expressed on this podcast are solely our own. Thank you to our listeners. If you have any suggestions, comments, or questions, or would like to be anonymously interviewed, please email us at drinkingburnout at gmail.com or message us on our Instagram account at drinkingburnout.